Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more. All in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Heather Anderson from Live Oak Bank. Who has to give a personal guarantee and do they have to pledge collateral with that guarantee? So the SBA requires anyone who's going to own greater than 20% of the economic interest of the business to provide a, a full personal guarantee. So let's take economic interest first. Instead of saying direct ownership, I said economic interest because the SBA is going to look at things like preferred returns. So a preferred equity holder might have to have a direct ownership of no more than around 13% because we add in those preferred returns over 10 years to test the 20% threshold. Another thing about economic interest is you couldn't have an investor that wasn't giving a personal guarantee, say at 19% direct ownership, but is receiving 25% of the revenue or the, of the EBITDA of the company through the operating agreement. That also would trip up the 20% threshold and, and cause us to require a personal guarantee. Now, when you are a personal guarantor, the SBA requires the lender to look at your personal balance sheet to see whether there's real estate with equity that could be pledged. If you own real estate yourself only or yourself with your spouse, and it has greater than 25% equity, then the SBA requires the lender to take a junior lien on that property. If there are multiple properties, they will require the lender to take all the properties that are available that meet that criteria until the loan is fully secured. All that said, if the properties are not available or there is no equity, it's okay. It doesn't affect the loan decision, at least not at Live Oak, but we do have to comply with the SBA regulations concerning who has to give a personal guarantee and who might have to pledge collateral as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Heather. To learn more about Live Oak Bank's search fund lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak's search fund landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to their office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood and Strong and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. My guest in this episode is Glenn Gonzalez. Glenn is the founder and CEO of Jetit, a fractional share private jet business with a unique model serving customers across the country and in Europe. Prior to founding Jetit, Glenn was an F-15 pilot in the Air Force and sold private jets on behalf of Gulfstream and Honda. This episode is a deep dive into all options available for business owners who want to fly private. If you want to explore private travel options, fly private more frequently, or even buy an aircraft directly to make your business and personal travel more efficient, this episode is for you. 
We talk about high-level benefits to flying private and what factors to consider when evaluating your options. We walk through each of the four core private travel models, charter, jet cards, fractional ownership, direct ownership, along with their pros and cons and what kind of person or business each is meant for. After diving into each model, we talk about how Glenn's company, Jetit, fits into the private travel ecosystem and where that ecosystem is headed in the future. Finally, I ask him what it's like flying an F-15. I hope you enjoyed this episode and find it useful for deciding how you and your business can utilize private travel in the near future. Thanks, Glenn, for coming on the podcast. It's This is an episode I've been really excited about because I'm an aviation geek and I was, before recording, I was telling you about the, the planes I have on my shelf. So this is the perfect blend of aviation and then business is flying private as a business owner. So I'm really excited to chat through that. Figured a good outline would be hearing all about your your background, flying F-15s, working for Gulfstream and Honda before Jetit, and then describing a little bit, kind of like high-level pros and cons of flying private, diving into each of the options of flying private, and then how Jetit fits into all of that. But let's start with your background. Like It sounds like you have quite the, quite the exciting background that I've loved, I've loved learning about. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. Thank like an owner, Alex. I'm really excited to share with you all. And I've been really fortunate and extremely blessed to have had an amazing career in aviation. Like you mentioned, I I flew fighters in the Air Force, but it actually, although the airplane was amazing and incredibly uh, uplifting and, and fulfilling, it really wasn't my favorite job in the Air Force. My favorite job in the Air Force was flying as an instructor pilot and taking those students that were going on to fly fighters and bombers uh, in just molding them from brand new pilot into steely-eyed, soon-to-be fighter pilot or bomber pilot. That, that was cool. And it was so rewarding because you know, you're, you're coaching and teaching them how to become great aviators, not just pilots. After, after the Air Force, though, I did go to Gulfstream. I loved every bit of that. I mean, I was traveling the world, visited you know, every continent, visited some of the most austere airports in the world, in the Marshall Islands, in Majuro, Palau, visited all of the major cities around the world. It, it was incredible, but uh, my passion was the, the dynamic nature of people and sales. I missed that dynamic energy from flying fighters and uh, found myself at Honda Aircraft Company, uh, where I was both flying and selling, which I was extremely happy with that. But you know, as the world turns, you climb one mountain, you look out on the horizon, you see another great mountain to climb. And that next mountain for me was Jeddah. That's fantastic. Uh, I would love to hear, do you have any favorite memories or stories of customers that you sold a Gulfstream or a Honda jet to where you went to maybe the middle of nowhere or some you know huge office or house or something like that? What's, what's kind of, what are some of the memories that stick out to you? You know, you, you never forget your first sale and I'll never forget. I, I'm on the road on my very first trip at uh, Honda and I'm sitting down with a customer and uh, I've been listening to him talk for about an hour and a half to two hours and he says, uh, well, who do I make the checkout to? I'm like, well, gosh, I, one, I didn't expect that. This is my first, first time out and about selling. I spent a couple of days with my, my VP of sales at the time. And then he went back home and I'm meeting with this guy who was in the database. And he says, well, who do I make the checkout to? And I'm kind of like, well, you can't make out a check. I can't accept a check from you. You're going to have to wire the funds. And that was the wrong answer. <laughs> I, so I, I got back. I went uh, back to Honda. I was like, guys, this guy wanted to write me a check. God, what kind of guy does that? And so uh, they're like, what do you mean you didn't take the check? So I went back. I was with him the next week. And 
I did accept his check. I did eventually uh, deliver the airplane to him. So that was one of those unique experiences that uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> Not quite exotic, but hilarious to me. Yeah, that, that's funny. That seems like the most stressful flight back home with the check in your briefcase, making sure it doesn't get <laughs> dirty or anything, nothing happens to it. Yeah, it was, it was uh, an uncomfortable experience, but I'm glad it worked out. And he and I are still great friends today. He's a phenomenal mentor. Uh, he's been a great counsel for the business as well. That's fantastic. One more question before diving into kind of high level of flying private. What are kind of the different breakdowns of customers that would buy a plane directly through Gulfstream or Honda Jet? Yeah, you know, there, there are several different marketplaces within aviation. There are the customers who just fly sporadically, kind of like your hotel. I, I just need it on an, uh, on an occasional basis, once or twice a year, maybe once a quarter. Those are your charter users. But if you know that you're going to frequent an area time and again, maybe you buy a second home or you buy a timeshare in that area. And that's where companies like Jetit exist. We're a fractional. You're buying a piece of the airplane. It's titled to you. There's amazing tax benefits associated with that. Um, it, but if you need to visit uh, the place all of the time, you know, instead of renting in your hometown, you're going to buy the home because you know you're going to be there. So you, you buy that home of residence because you're going to be there 350 days out of the year. In aviation, if you're going to use the airplane more than, say, 150 hours annually, then you probably should give some thought to buying the airplane. So those are kind of the three markets charter slash membership fractional and then whole aircraft ownership and you know the the type of airplane that you're buying into the program that you're buying into is really mostly dependent on how you're going to use the service so there's the the timing that i mentioned but there's also the type of aircraft if i know i need to fly from south florida to seattle i need a big airplane to cross the country but if i'm only flying from uh, southern cal to las vegas and I'm doing that several times a week, it makes sense to buy into a, a, a Honda Jet or a program like Jet. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. And then diving into flying private. So let's do a, like, explain it like I'm five. So I've flown for, you know, 20 years in my career. I have a ton of air miles, perhaps. I'm the expert at getting through security and, and flying with minimal packaging and all this other stuff. I've done it my whole career. Never flown private before. I have no idea how to get started. Where does someone in that position get started in terms of exploring the idea of flying private? Yeah, there are all kinds of consultants and uh, brokers and individuals that you can reach out to, but really you can educate yourself online. Flying private decisions. You go to jetit.com. We'll go jetit.com. We'll, we'll guide you and, and coach you through uh, a consultative process to make sure that you make the right decision. But I, I think the first thing to do is to just have a, a, an internal valuation, evaluation. Where do I need to fly to and where do I need to get consistently? How frequently am I going to do it? And who needs to go with me? The who needs to go with me and how the, the locations are going to determine what type of airplane. If I need to take eight people with me and, and I'm only going a short distance, well, maybe I don't need the Gulfstream. Maybe I only need a PC-12. If I'm going a, a medium distance from and crossing multiple states, it might benefit me to have a jet, If I, especially if I'm only going two to three people. 
So, so those are kind of the first places to, to give some thought to, to evaluate who's, where am I going and who's going with me and how frequently am I doing it? That'll help you determine the program and the type of aircraft. Once you have that information, then you, you can figure out, well, how, how often am I doing it? How many uh, hours a year will I need this service? And that'll help you determine, you know, most people will say, if I'm doing less than 50 hours, then I should be in a charter or a membership program. But if I'm doing 50 to 150, 50 to 200 hours a year, in that particular case, I probably need to be in some kind of fractional uh, program. And if I'm doing more than 200 hours a year, I definitely need to own my own airplane and have my own crew. Uh, obviously, there are different price points associated with each of those. And that's really where Jetit brings a, a ton of value. We can provide you with the cost similar to a charter or a jet card, but you get all of the benefits and the aircraft availability like whole aircraft ownership. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So then let's go into broad pros and cons of flying private. So of course, there's obvious pros like you can fly directly to, directly to the city you need to go to. There's no security, that sort of thing. But there's probably some other more subtle pros and even cons to flying private that I'd love to hear about. So what's the pros and cons of flying private and what does that, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, I, I liken it to how we treat our cars versus, say, riding the bus uh, to and from someplace or public transportation. I use my car because I can leave when I want at the, the time and hour with the number of people that I want. I have full and total autonomy to head to wherever I want to go when I want to go. In addition to that, though, I have the amazing efficiency of there are no stops. I just go directly to where I want to go. So on a high level, the value of private aviation is autonomy and efficiency. But there are these little nuances like you know the, the previous administration did a great thing by introducing uh, 100% write-off in Section 179. I'm not a CPA, but I'm happy to speak to it. Uh, if you're using the asset as a business tool, you can write off 100% of that acquisition from your earnings. You know That requires some work with your accountant. That requires some work on our part to provide you with an analysis of what you've been doing on an annual basis. But man, what an amazing tool to inject capital into an industry. And so it's been a great thing for those who are aware of it in our industry. The other things that private aviation provides for you in today's environment you know, look, we don't, seems like COVID is wearing off, but then a new variant comes about. So if I'm only flying with, you know, vaccinated crews and I'm only flying with the people that I asked to be on the airplane, it, it, it's a comfort level and a peace of mind that comes with being able to have the autonomy and efficiency that we all want and, and seek after. Yeah, that, that part makes a lot of sense too with avoiding, you can avoid getting ill by flying private on your own. That's, that part makes a lot of sense. At, at the end of the day, Alex, it's about time. It's about the time to do more business. It's about the time to spend more time with our families. It's about time to experience more out of life. And you know, at, on the very highest level, that's what we do. And oftentimes, I think we miss that in the opulence and what seems to be extravagant. And you see the celebrities using private aviation. But you know, 98% of our customers are not celebrities. They are business owners that want to get home to that dance recital. They want to get home to that soccer match, or, or they want to go spend more time with the supplier that needs the help so that they can further grow their business, so they can further support 
the employees that work in their company. And that's how we approach it. Now, every decision that we make is focused on how do we better support our customers? How do we better support our employees? And in turn, the business will grow. Yeah, that was one amazing stat that I was reading within the Harvard case study that Jedit had had done. There was that 2018 study that said that 57% of all businesses that use private aviation had less than 500 employees, which was amazing to me because I figured private jets and private flying was mainly a you know public company type of activity versus what which it, what it sounds like is reality, which is a lot of small companies use private flying as well. That was pretty surprising to me. Yeah, everyone always thinks that it's just the major players that are going around the world to, you know, the the big three flying into DC to meet with the uh, the legislators. But the reality, like you said, is it's the small companies, less than 500 employees that are using these tools to expand their reach. Yeah, maybe you have a, a, a one state radius, but, you know, in, in aviation, operating an airplane in the U.S., the airplane takes off and lands just the same in any other country around the world. So to be able to expand your aviation business geographically or to expand your paper business or your um, sales organization, your consulting firm, to be able to reach more people, um, if, if you can expand it by a, a turboprop or a jet share or owning your own airplane and touch more states, you know, there's a return on that effort for your business. It's no different from buying more vehicles if you're in a trucking company. Having more vehicles, it creates an opportunity for you to bring in more business. Well, just the same, if you have an aircraft and you can uh, get out there, yeah, there's an expense to it. But if I know I can meet with more customers, I can deal with my suppliers and get more efficiency and get more product in hand to sell to my customers, man, I, the return is, is, is unmatched. We, we had one customer who's in commercial real estate. I love to tell this story. Because he spent uh, less than four hours of flight time, touched five cities in one day, and it was less than $8,000. And in commercial real estate, an $8,000 travel expense is just, gosh, what's your return if that's all you spent in one day to touch five cities and view properties in each of those environments? It's amazing return on investment. Yeah, no kidding. Especially with something like Wi-Fi on board where you can keep on email the whole time on the whole travel. So I want to dive into the different... Uh, options available for flying private. But just before doing that, there was a rule of thumb that we had talked about before recording where I was trying to think of how do you how do I put each of these models into context for a business owner? So if a business owner makes $2 million a year in net income versus 10, what are the different options available? And there was a interesting rule of thumb that you had come up with based on your experience working with lots of different customer types that made a lot that put this in better context. So can you walk through kind of the rule of thumb for what makes sense in spending for private travel when you own a business? Yeah, when you when you own a company, if you're thinking about your personal net worth, if, if you are somewhere around $2 million in take-home pay, in most cases, people are going to spend 10% of their annual take-home pay on their private travel. So in this particular case, $2 million, $200,000 applied towards private travel. In the case of Jetit, that's you know, just under 100 hours of flight time in a year, plus your monthly expenses. $200,000, $250,000. And that's, that's easy when you think about the value and time that you have when you still have another 1.8 or so for your annual take home. Now, it, it's a little bit different when it comes to companies because companies have more expenses. They have more to, to be concerned with. 
So that percentage goes down as far as the percentage of, of net income in the case of a business. But the return on investment is higher. The, those companies do have more expenses. They have more things to be concerned about with their employees. They may not, they, they have to manage their assets and get a return on those assets. But this aircraft then becomes an asset. And, you know, that, so that percentage becomes somewhere between two, the five to 7% of your annual net income. If you're looking at spending two hundred to you know, $500,000 uh, on an annualized basis. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That's a good, that's a good backdrop for breaking down the different models. So let's get into the models. So there's four rough models that each of these different options tend to fall into, which is chartering. So just calling someone up and chartering a plane from here to there. There's jet cards. Then there's fractional ownership, where now you're starting to own the plane as an option. And then direct ownership, where this plane is 100% belonging to you and your company. Let's start with charter and work our way up to full ownership. So within the charter model, what are uh, rough pros and cons of that? Flexibility, costs, what does that model look like for someone? And who does that fit? yeah, the, the charter model, and, and both charter and jet cards are one and the same. The jet card is just kind of a, a contractual charter arrangement. Uh, but your basic charter customer, it's a spot market. What's available? When is it available? Does it meet my needs? What does it cost? And the market will determine what that cost is. Um, the customer has no control over it. Um, you can negotiate it, but at the end of the day, whatever the market's charging, you can either take it or you can leave it. In today's environment where demand is so high, charter prices are, are just, they're at an all-time high right now, which is very good for those operators. And, and not every operator is the same. So that's something to be aware of if you are a charter customer. You want to check their safety rating. You want to check their crew ratings and, and their crew status and experience. Those are things that you can ask any broker or any company that's offering uh, their services to you. So the, the advantage to the charter is, again, it's kind of like this is, I'm showing up in a town and I'm only going to be here one night. I need a, a place to lay my head. Or in this case, I'm only going to travel to go meet with this uh, person and, or I'm going on a quick flight with my family. Or maybe I want to uh, show off to some friends or I just have to be there. And commercial is not going to make it happen for me. I've got to get there to visit family. Charter is a perfect solution for that. Uh, when it's just a, a spot market, I need a one-time expense to make this happen right now. When it comes to the jet cards, jet cards are about the same price point, maybe a little less expensive than the spot market. It's almost like your uh, uh, futures. I'm paying for a value today so I can have access to this aircraft. And so you'll buy 50 hours, 25 hours. Rarely do you see jet cards over a 50-hour dollar value. And, and then there's a cost per hour for that service. Still very expensive uh, because there's no long-term contractual arrangement. And oftentimes, it helps companies in aviation float their business by accepting the cash up front and then providing the service later. It, it, that said, you know, the people who need that are, I, I know I'm going to have some quarterly travel for my business. We're going to do a road show here soon and need some private travel or some additional lift to support our needs. Or maybe I just need to go to some austere environments and I need to get there and get back. And that's where then those jet cards become a great value. What's interesting is because the demand in the industry has been so high, 
a lot of companies have shut down the jet cards. They are limited by these contractual arrangements that you know they're guaranteeing that they're going to provide uplift and transportation for people. And with the market being so busy and in an entirely new space, a lot of those commitments are, are hard to hang on to. So they've stopped selling jet cards um, until a later date. So hard to find jet cards these days. And, and I think people are rising up to the fact that you know, I, there's a company that out west that ended up struggling financially and going uh, out of business. And the customers that had jet cards with them were left holding the bag. Yeah. Can we spend just a, another minute or two on the state of jet cards as an industry today? What is that? It sounds like that option might be becoming harder and harder to get a hold of. Is that the case? Or what are some other dynamics going on with jet cards today? Yeah, I, I think it's really, it's just the contractual requirement on the part of the operator to provide lift. The In, in the case of the fractional providers, a lot of the fractional providers, NetJets and FlexJet, in the past have provided jet card services. But the same goes for the other charter companies that are in the marketplace. And because they have so much demand from their fractional owners, they are they've, they've stopped selling jet cards because they've got to make sure they support their primary customer. In our case at Jetta, as a fractional, you know, we don't exist without our share owners. And so, you know, operating safely is kind of inherent. But the second piece of that is making sure that we keep our customers happy and making sure the airplanes show up on time, service and support them to meet their needs. Uh, that that's all very critical to our success as an organization. And you know, we started out without any kind of jet cars and, and really don't have any intention to move into a jet card environment. And before we move on to the next model, can we I want to break down cost a little bit. So within the charter jet card model, just to keep a standard kind of comparable flight for each of these, if you're flying from New York, Teterboro to Miami, what does that route cost for something like charter or jet card? What's the typical cost for that for that flight? Sure. Sure. The the cost and price point is going to be very similar for those two. In, in the case of the spot market, the charter customer, you're depending on the type of aircraft. And so a Honda Jet type airplane, it's going to be a three-hour flight, and it's going to run you somewhere around fifteen dollars to um, $20,000. Um, if you are then going up in size, it, it could run all the way up. If you're in a Gulfstream, it could be thirty dollars to $40,000. Um, at, at the end of the day, it's physics. The bigger the aircraft, the more... Uh, it's going to cost to fly that airplane, the more fuel that it's going to burn because it takes more energy to move more weight. So if you've got more weight that you're moving from north to south, in this case, Teterboro to South Florida, or maybe you're taking more people, it's just going to cost you more. No no different from if I take a 100-pound box to FedEx or a, a letter to the post office. It's more expensive to move it, and the faster I want it there, the more it's going to cost. Perfect. Excellent. Okay. That's a that's a great segue into fractional ownership. Then, so this is the this is the model of Jetit and NetJets owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Which funny story, Berkshire Hathaway's office is three blocks from my apartment here. We can we can see it while washing dishes. It's very motivational. What does what does that model of fractional ownership look like? Pros and cons. Who is that a fit for? And then afterwards, we'll we'll break down costs as well. But first, starting with just pros and cons, and then who is that a fit for? Yeah, so the pros and cons of the fractional model, it it, it really is necessary if you're going to fly consistently. 
I have a consistent need. In our case, I know that I want to do this trip once a month. Well, with 25 days available to me, I can do the around trip once a month. If I've got multiple legs that I'd like to do in the same day, I can, again, do that with our days-based model. And that's just one day of utilization. Most companies are different from Jetta and they, they use hours. You know, our, our thought process is the hours is a construct of, of aviation. The airplane costs X dollars an hour to operate. Therefore, I'm going to charge the customer an hour. Um, we still have an hourly rate, but it's your airplane for the day. It's how you'd use it if you own the whole airplane. So, you know, we think the advantage is there. The cons to a fractional program, more times than not, it's acquisition. The cost to get into the program, you're buying a piece of the airplane, which is, is a fraction of the total cost of the airplane, which more times than not is, is not inexpensive. These are expensive aircraft. Our Honda jets start at $6 million. And that's the way that we option them. So they're expensive aircraft. So if you're buying a tenth of the airplane, you're in excess of $600,000 per. The, the benefit to that is, like I mentioned earlier, you've got great tax incentives to do so. It's your asset for a period of time, and, and, and whether it be five or 10 years. And the advantage to that is, you know, it's like any other fixed cost. The more I can use it, the lower my overall cost to operate in that aircraft is. So those are a number of the benefits. I don't really know if there are any cons other than to you have to buy into the program, especially the way that our program is set up with our low cost of entry, the aircraft availability, and our low hourly rate of only $1,800 an hour. Gotcha. And so I want to spend a moment on the different pricing. So Jetit has a day model versus an hourly model. What's the hourly model look like across several of Jedit's competitors. And I just want to hear a little bit more about like the pricing model. Like how does it actually work? And if I'm flying that same New York to South Florida route, what does that cost start to look like? Yeah. So, you know, in, in most cases, Jet is going to be four to five times less expensive than other programs. Our hourly rates, $1,800 an hour. Most companies are somewhere around $76, $7,700 an hour all in. That's significant uh, when you are flying as frequently as a lot of small and medium-sized business owners need to travel. You know, we, going back to your comment, you know, who's flying and your question, who's flying and choosing it to buy into the fractional programs, it's those individuals, typically your small and medium-sized businesses that have a consistent travel need, whether it's defined or undefined, if you're a private equity firm just getting going and you know you need to do a roadshow to support one of your new clients or to sell and take a company public. You know, the, it, we're a great fit for that because it's a high concentration, concentration of utilization. And at $1,800 an hour, you know the return on your investment is going to be there. Just the same, those individuals who need to expand their radius and, or have customers spread throughout a region, those are the best people that utilize a service like Jetit. In the case that they're paying $7,600, $8,000 an hour plus fuel surcharge, plus, 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 you know, th- those companies, if you have a need for, I might need a really small airplane, I might need a really big airplane, I might need something in the middle, th- those companies, that, that's when you pay for that. You're paying for those additional aircraft, whether you're using them or not. With Jetit, we do have access to a coast-to-coast airplane with our Gulfstream G150s. We're excited to add those to our fleet and expand that. Our owners are super excited to use them. But those are the different people that are using the services and, and 
the differentiation between the, the companies. Oh, and you mentioned the the tax element too, how now that you're actually starting to own the, you're owning an asset now, you can now start to depreciate. Do you, like, even with a fractional share that, what was that with section 179, can you still depreciate the full fractional ownership of a jet just as you would with a full direct ownership? You, you most certainly can. And don't quote me on the section 179. I'm not a CPA. I'm pretty sure that's what it is, but yeah, you, you sure can. And, and that's a gr- actually a great segue into whole aircraft ownership. If you are flying your airplane consistently for businesses, we would always say somewhere around $30 million a year in net income to support your Honda jet size aircraft at the $6 million value. Uh, for individuals, it was somewhere around $10 million a year to own a whole Honda jet. That was the, Those are the lowest entry points for a $6 million a year spend. Reason being, you've got two crew members that you're paying, at least two crew members, maybe three that you're paying for. And in today's highly uh, competitive uh, pilot market, you're paying somewhere around $130,000 for a captain and uh, $110,000 maybe or, or $90,000 for a co-pilot. Um, that's just for the crew. So you're already $200,000 a year in before you get into maintenance, fuel, upkeep of the airplane, uh, hangar space. So you know, there's some significant expenses to whole aircraft ownership. There's also the, the effort to manage the airplane and to uh, take care of any maintenance that goes with it. So, so it's, it's an extensive effort. And what happens when that airplane is down, uh, when it's down for maintenance for whatever reason? Uh, you're kind of out of luck and you're now going to a program like a JetIt or a NetJets or FlexJet or, or Wheels Up or whatever the case may be to fulfill that need that you're missing out on uh, that you needed all year long. Gotcha. And you said it was so an individual $10 million in, net, in yearly income is about where whole ownership starts to make sense. Is that the number you had? Well, for and that it's dependent upon the type of airplane. But what we would always say at Honda Aircraft Company was, I needed about ten some a customer to have about ten million dollars in personal net worth before they could afford a five six million dollar Honda jet. You mean the net income per year, not net worth? Net income. Excuse me. Sorry. Yes, net income. Gotcha. gotcha. Yes, and and for a business, uh, the the bottom line or baseline is about thirty. You know, the, look, those are rules of thumb. If I know that I've got the return on investment there then yeah, I, I might you can easily do this at 15 or even at 10 as a business. But you, know, you definitely want to be smart about those decisions, smart about any swings in the economy or any changes in your, your marketplace before you make those kinds of calls. Because operating airplanes, is, it, it's not easy and it's incredibly expensive. Yeah, it is expensive. And to the point of when your plane is down, now as a business, maybe you need to get two planes to make sure that you at least have one available at all times. I don't know if you've seen The Righteous Gemstones, but it's this TV show about these very wealthy yeah. televangelists. Yeah, they have the, the three <laughs> planes, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I thought that was just one of the most <laughs> hilarious parts of that show. So then within all these different models, obviously, we've talked about Jedit throughout this and how they might fit in. But talk about Jedit. What is it as a company? We, I guess we didn't dive into that nearly as much, but let's dive into Jedit as a company and then how it fits in with the ecosystem of private flying here. Yeah, so at Jetit, we operate a fleet of Honda Jets and Gulfstream G150s. As soon as we receive our next airplane, that'll bring us to 26 airplanes globally. 26 airplanes meaning last year we started our operations in Canada 
as well as in Europe. And, and in Europe, my co-founder runs our European operation called Jet Club. You know, we're, we're excited because we're the only company to in private aviation to have regulatory approval um, in three geographic regions. Uh, so we're, we're super excited about that. Our program is that we are fractional, as we mentioned. We're days-based, whether it's 25 days a year or 130 days a year. We're excited to have a solution for the marketplace that provides them, them with access to a whole aircraft crew all in for $1,800 an hour. And, and it's your airplane for the day. So you can fly to multiple places and, and during that day, or you can fly to one place during that day, whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, let us know in advance. The airplane shows up at the time that you want it there and takes you to your destination with our professionally trained crew. I, I think that's kind of the high-level synopsis of, of who we are and what we are. I, I think the bigger piece to it, though, is there are only two things of, of great priority at JETIC. Operate safely, make people happy. Sometimes those things don't come, are, don't always coincide because we have to operate safely. It, it might make a customer unhappy, but you can rest assured that the decisions that our crew members are making are always above board and smart as related to making sure that our customers are arrive at their destination safely. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about, because I, I'm, as an aviation geek, I love studying airlines and Southwest is one of my favorite, which it sounds like you've done a similar model with at least one type of aircraft for the most part. I'd love to hear what's the, what are some of the differences between as a business operator, as a CEO running a company, what is it like running a airline, a commercial airline with scheduled flights versus charter? It seems that the business models are very different, but both roughly in airline travel of sorts. What are some of the differences between the two as an operator? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's tough. We're, we are a private airline. It's scheduled, but wildly unscheduled. By that, I mean, you know, it's scheduled for tomorrow, but tomorrow could change with an aircraft anomaly. Tomorrow could change with the customer needs that uh, I need to adjust my time or I need to adjust the number of passengers with me. So it's a scheduled in the sense that our customers are asking for their needs um, and our airplanes are moving all about the country. We've got airplanes in every corner of the U.S. and they're flying and supporting our customers anywhere and everywhere they want to go. Uh, But it's constantly in flux and we have some amazingly smart and intelligent people that are on top of the schedule, they're in constant communication with our customers, making sure that their needs are met. While our crew members are moving the airplanes from A to B and taking care of our customers in the process. I mean, they are the face of our organization on the road while operating the airplane safely and moving, you know, this this highly flexible schedule where you have so many variables with weather and winds and customer needs and you know, you got to always, of course, operate the airplane safely and duty day restrictions and the FAA. I mean, it, it just never stops. Yeah, no kidding. Speaking of logistics, one question I've always had about private flying is when the when the passenger, like the, the folks get to the destination that they're wanting to go to, does JetIt help arrange a car or some mode of transportation from the airport to the office or do folks typically rent a car or take an uber what does that typically look like yeah I, you know it, look our job isn't just to get you to and from uh, we have a 24 7 concierge team that is receiving every ask and need of yours as a as one of our customers whether it's flying as a share owner or as a charter customer with jenna 
when you get to your destination, if you are seeking transportation, we'll arrange a car service, we'll arrange a rental car. And if the airport allows, that service will be there ready to pick you up as soon as the engine shut down. They'll, we'll pop the door open, we'll get your bags, and you'll be on your way. It's one of those little small nuanced benefits of traveling privately that I landed or I show up to the airplane and I'm airborne five minutes later, I land and I'm on my way to my destination. Again, within five to 10 minutes of, of being on the ground or arriving at the airport. Um, if there's something that you want food-wise, it's there for you. If you need us to coordinate reservations, I mean, if it's legal, we'll do it for you. Uh, and there's no additional cost for it. It will just pass on the direct cost to you. But you know, that's part of the service that we offer. That's fantastic. And I was I had a different episode with a different entrepreneur and they had shared quite a few what they called near-death experiences in their business as they grew. I'd be curious, what are some hard times, near-death experiences, like, oh crap, what's going to happen to the to Jedit kind of moments early on in, in the early days of Jedit? Yeah, you know, it, my one of my mentors, a gentleman I mentioned earlier, he said, Glenn, uh, it, you should never stray from 5% of your business model. If you can avoid doing that, then your business, you've got a sound business plan. And so there haven't really been any, oh my gosh, moments in, in our business, primarily because the airplanes have done what they're supposed to, or our team has done what it's supposed to. And we've all been disciplined about sticking to the game plan uh, by sticking to the, the business model that we put together. And you know, we talk about the difficulties of running this you know, dynamic airline, but really it, it, it's in line with what we outlined. It's the game plan that we put together. My co-founder and I, we spent two years writing out every little nuanced detail of this business model. It helps that we're aviators. You know, there have been a lot of wealthy individuals humbled by this industry. And we, we built the model based upon that knowledge of the industry. Now, I've done everything from the, the fighters to cleaning the lavatory in the airplane. We've been around it. We understand what to expect, what's coming next. And you know, those things have really helped us. And, and then surrounding ourselves with amazing people on our team. I think we're almost 170 strong now throughout Jetit, it's just been a great experience for us to be able to stick to our plan and recognize the challenges that are forthcoming. And it's a big part of Jetit is the the service element, of course. So there's folks on your team who are interacting with customers all day long for extended periods of time. How do you hire and recruit folks who are really good with customers in lots of different situations and perhaps some tenser than others. How do you continue to find those types of folks? Yeah, the, the, the main thing that we want, and we kind of have a template for what we're looking for at Jetit. We, have a, we call them our five Cs, and I'll, I'll spare you all of that. But you know, that in onboarding process, it consists of people, and we're listening for those five Cs. We're paying attention to people who, have, who live and demonstrate uh, our values as an organization. And, and it starts at the onboarding making sure that we have the right people in our organization. When it comes to service and support, we want servant leaders, people who are compassionate and demonstrate compassion and empathy uh, towards uh, other people. And they, we want them to demonstrate that in our discussion with them. If you're dealing with empathetic people, people who can put themselves in the shoes of someone else, then uh, most likely they can be a good customer service person. Obviously, they have to be a good communicator. We want someone who understands our industry. Uh, but we can teach you the industry. Uh, the first thing we want are servant leaders who are service-minded and uh, focused on 
making sure that someone else has exactly what they need and they're well taken care of. That's fantastic. What do you see as the future of private travel? What what's the what are some trends that you're noticing and where do you think 10 years from now this landscape will look like? Yeah, when when people ask about Jetit and why we started when we did, you know, I look like COVID and everything that's happened has been uh, a, a boom for our business, for our industry, I should say. But at Jetit, we kind of view it as this was inevitable. This surge that we're seeing in private aviation it just had to happen. Uh, why? That autonomy and efficiency that we talked about, that's why people choose travel. You know, If you look at the history of transportation and you go all the way back to a horse and carriage, if you had the means, you had a horse and carriage. If you didn't, you were walking. Why? Because it was the horse and carriage is more efficient. If you then fast forward to today, the more most efficient and autonomous way to travel is to do so privately. So if, if we at Jetit and other companies that follow the Jetit model and other companies that come behind us and new technologies that come about that can do it cheaper or less expensive from that physics standpoint that we talked about, you know, those things mean that it's, it's inevitable that there's a shift in the industry. And that shift is happening right now. I think it will continue. And the end result of that is the service ends up getting lower and lower because the margins are already so tight on the commercial side of the house for commercial aviation. You have very tight margins, you have more people moving away from it. So the service then is the first thing to suffer in, the, in that particular instance, which then drives more people who can afford it towards programs uh, and services like Jetit. So I, I think the future is here. We're right on the leading edge. We like to say that we at Jetit are on the leading edge of the evolution of transportation. And uh, for where technology is today with the service levels that can be offered and our innovative business model, you know, we feel good about our position. I love the leading edge aviation pun, by the way. That's awesome. There's tons of <laughs> aviation puns you can use, which is part of the fun part, I, I imagine. Are some of the things you're doing with Jetit, is that part of what takes private flying from maybe not to the masses, like to everyone, but at least makes it significantly more affordable than you know, that kind of 15 grand, 20 grand sticker price to do a you know, New York to Miami flight. What are some of the things that need to happen to make private travel even more accessible than it is today? Yeah, you know, the combustion. Combustion is uh, that, that part of physics that allows us to go faster. If, if I can reduce the cost of that combustion, Electric, you know, at Jetit, we've made a significant investment in buy aerospace and a number of aircraft that that we will buy from them. If if I can reduce my cost from a technology standpoint, the cost to move from A to B, then I can do. Then, if if I can still go equally as fast as I can with combustion with a, a turboprop or a jet, there are limitations in all propeller aircraft. But the faster I can go at the lower price point, that technology will be that next shift that allows more people to have access um, to private aviation. At Jetit, we think it's going to be electric aviation. Uh, there are a number of um, challenges from a logistics standpoint. There are a number of challenges from a you know engineering standpoint on the hydrogen side. There are some super smart people working on it, so I, I wish them all the luck. But you know, from, from our research, electric is everywhere. Our electricity is everywhere. And so 
to have an electric aircraft that, like the E-Flyer 800, that can fly at the same speed as a King Air, but at dollars per hour versus hundreds of dollars per hour, it's it's just that will be a, a big game changer. We're super excited to be again on the, the front edge of that or the tip of the nose on the nose of the aircraft as we enter into a new horizon in our industry. And so when you talk about cost savings going to electric on the flight we've used throughout this episode, the New York to Miami, from 15 to 20 grand, where does an electric plane drop that cost to? Yeah, I mean, you know, the airplanes are, are have a cost per hour. You know, that when I used to fly the, the Gulf Streams, it was somewhere around $3,000, $4,000 an hour to fly those airplanes. And then you have your crew costs and all of the other fixed expenses that are tied to the aircraft. And that's where the, this $5,000 an hour or that $15,000 number comes from. But with an electric aircraft, I'm cutting fuel out of the cost. And fuel in that hourly rate is typically somewhere around two-thirds the cost of the operation of the airplane. Uh, so if I can cut out two-thirds of the cost to, from that $3,000 an hour to operate, and I take out 2000 of it, now I have the airframe, I have the engines, in this particular case, the electric motors that require uh, inspection and evaluation, and the airframe that requires inspection and evaluation, but I no longer have the fuel. So it's just the kilowatt hours that I'm investing into charging the aircraft. Uh, it's the battery refurbishment over a period of time, and some of those things are still to be determined. But uh, you know, the cost is reduced dramatically without the fossil fuels driving the combustion in order to go fast. Wow, that's a significantly more substantial savings than I imagined it would be. I didn't realize it was two-thirds the cost was fuel. I figured it might be 50%, but two-thirds is a big chunk. And, and, and that's a variable expense uh, because right now fuel rates are through the roof and everywhere in, in aviation, just the same as our own automotives. So if you double the cost of fuel, you just increased uh, the cost of your operation drastically. So, and that cost has to be transferred onto the traveler, the aircraft owner, the fractional user. And so it, it is a, a challenge for our industry. And so as soon as we can pull that out um, and have an electric vehicle that can fly at similar speeds, I think you'll see the price point of their operations continue downward. We do have to hope that those manufacturers can develop those airplanes faster and they can do so at a lower price point. And, and that'll be the other piece. If you have to trade off what's a $5 million, $6 million Honda jet for a $12 million electric airplane, well, you know, that, you're kind of losing out on some of those benefits. But um, if we can have an equal value in the aircraft price point uh, without the variable cost of fuel, life gets much better and we can open up private aviation to a much larger pool of, of travelers. Yeah, that would be a significantly larger pool. Moving to some closing questions, what college class would you teach if, if it could be about any subject you wanted? <laughs> Man, that's tough. Look, I, I love uh, communication. I love leadership. I love what we've been able to do as a team and kind of organizational theory. So, you know, I, I think anything around growth and development, I definitely stay away from engineering. I understand a lot of it, but you don't want me doing your, your math calculations. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't think people want me doing theirs either. Engineering is not my, not my forte. 
what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? Hmm. Strongly held belief that I've changed my mind on. You know, I, I, I've been very blessed to have amazing parents who, you know, they, they taught me to, to, to stand on what you believe, to live life without regrets. And I, I don't have any regrets or anything that I've changed my mind on. If anything, I've, I've learned to kind of slow down a little bit in life. It's very necessary. So maybe that's one of the things that uh, I've learned to pace myself a little bit more versus charging hard 24 hours a day seven days a week. Do you think the the charging hard 24 hours a day, do you think that's what got you today to where you are today, where you can now slow down a little bit? Or do you think you could have been a little bit slower throughout your career and things would have gone just as well? I, I think I probably could have slowed down and things would have continued the way that they did. You know, m- m- the things that I've been blessed and fortunate to accomplish in life Uh, in large part, were the support of other people being there at the right time, helping me um, achieve my goals and dreams. I I have a saying, you either dream big or you don't sleep. And I have very big dreams, and I always have. I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly fighters. I wanted to play Division I sports. You know, big dreams that not everyone has the fortunate opportunity to experience. And I'm very grateful and thankful for those experiences. But once once you have that dream, you got to chase it. You got to go after it and go after it fully. And I, I think I probably didn't go after, have to go after it as hard as I did at times, in burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. But it's still been a fun blast and fun ride all the way. Yeah, certainly. What's the best business you've ever seen? I hope it becomes Jetit. I'm excited about where we are and what we're doing. Uh, I love the Southwest Airlines business model. Gosh, they've been successful year over year since inception. You know, I mean, there's so many great businesses and there's so much you can learn for, from those companies that have succeeded and the ones that have failed. So, you know, look, I, I, I'm just kind of a business nerd. I'll sit and read case studies all day long uh, about companies. And uh, I'm excited that, you know, Jetit was honored to have Harvard Business School case study written on our, our business model. But uh, I, I love them all. I, I couldn't choose just one. Maybe a, yeah, maybe a better version of the question is: What are some who are some aviation entrepreneurs that you admire and you watch closely to see what they're up to? Yeah, I, I love what Scott Kirby is doing at United Airlines. Uh, he's a fellow Academy grad. Scott is innovative in his thinking. He's constantly pushing the envelope with how they are uh, trying to create value for their shareholders. He's not afraid to make change. He's not afraid to innovate. And, you know, so that's that's someone present day. If I were to look backwards in time, you know, the, the Bill Lear and everything that they did to introduce private aviation to the world, it, it was just remarkable to be a visionary, to see what we found to be autonomy and efficiency and how to bring it to the marketplace. I, I love what George Bai is doing from a, a future standpoint, uh, bringing electric aviation to the masses. It, it's going to change how we travel. So. Uh, those are some of the present day, past, and future that I think are, are remarkable in uh, our industry. And I, I love to see uh, what what they've done and are continuing to do in business. Yeah, those are phenomenal examples of really talented entrepreneurs. One last fun question. You've flown a lot of different planes. And I would just love to hear what's the what are some of the differences 
besides, you know, some of the obvious between flying something like a Honda jet versus your F-15? Wow, uh, man, you know, Alex, the F-15 is a marvel. The world's greatest superiority fighter, the F-15 Eagle Eagle. To be able to stand an aircraft on its tail and to climb straight up and accelerate in the process or to fly well above the speed of sound. And you know, I, I always think about supporting our, our nation at Operation Noble Eagle as where we would support the president or dignitaries. And, and George Bush uh, was at the time was in Kenny Bunkport, Maine. And it was my birthday. And taking off on my birthday and flying with armed weapons on your airplane and seeing the sunrise uh, with your wingman flying next to you is one of the most surreal experiences in aviation that, that I have had. It is amazing. Um, but on the flip side of that, when I take my most incredible experience in private aviation and just aviation in general and, and having the opportunity to fly, you know, recently deceased and uh, passed away, a great man, an original Tuskegee Airman, Charles McGee, to have this 99-year-old man flying next to me on his birthday, the, one of the men who created opportunity for me to even be in aviation, it was a tear-jerking experience. I literally cried, and I, my wife will tell you, I don't cry often. She had never seen me cry uh, until uh, I told her about that. And she, she still hasn't, but it was such an emotional experience, and that was brought to me in a Honda jet. So, you know, look, I... I've loved every airplane that I've flown. Any pilot will tell you the airplane that I'm flying and I land in safely is is my favorite airplane that day. But, you know, it's each experience that brings so much joy. And I'm so grateful for those moments in time. That's fantastic. I love that story. Thank you so much, Glenn, for sharing your time today. I've really, really enjoyed getting to talk all about private flying, different options available, jet it, flying F-15s. I'd love to chat for three hours, but we can't do that, unfortunately. But <laughs> thank you for sharing the time you did today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alex. This is a treat. You, you drew some new things out of me. Some great questions. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Music.